Hello again, everyone. Welcome to one of the most uh, watched and listened to podcasts about recovery and addiction and everything in between. Uh, I'm Randall Carlisle, my co-host, Rachel Santizo, and this is Odyssey House Journals. We welcome you all. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing really well. Thank you. How are you, Randall? I am fine. I never have a, a, a t-shirt with a message like you do. You change it every week. I don't know how many messages and t-shirts you can come up with. So what, <laughs> describe this one. So today I'm wearing a shirt and it says, be the voice and stop suicide. So it's speaking up that when you, when you hear something, you see something or someone is struggling, it's about using, using our voice for the struggle. And so that's what I'm representing today. Well, I'm glad you're representing that because suicide is a significant issue in society, especially here in Utah. I, I, uh, I have more analytics from our statistician, Matt. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. You can, we are available on, to be watched on YouTube and listened to on iTunes, iHeart, uh, Spotify, anywhere where, where good podcasts can be found. Uh, and so we can do analytics on all this. And so one of the things that came out, we've talked about all the foreign countries, including your boyfriend in Russia, Igor. Hi, Igor. Yeah, hi, hi again, Igor. I, <laughs> I still am offering you that, but that bottle of good, good vodka, if you come over here and visit us. I um, know. But he, he doesn't seem to be following up. He will someday. You watch. We'll get a we'll get an email or something from Igor in in Russia. Anyway, they they figured out the top cities over the past thirty days of people who have tuned into our podcast. Uh, let me throw it out. Take a guess as to what the top city is. Salt Lake City. You I kind of felt pressured into answering that. <laughs> you, know, you, you would think it would be Salt Lake or somewhere in Utah, and this, this blows me away. The top city with 62 hits on our podcast is Yonkers, New York. Wow, that's you know, incredible. That's, that's north of New York City, and I, I, I can't... I, anyway, hello, everyone in Yonkers. I, we're glad <laughs> you're tuned in or whatever. Our second biggest city... Boise, Idaho. Columbus, Ohio. Ooh. <laughs> I, I, can't, I, like it, <laughs> I can't figure these things out. And then, then it's Salt Lake City, Payson, Draper, uh, Provo, uh, Magna. That's, uh, oh, and then San Francisco and Las Vegas are in there too. So that's is, magical. I, I love that. It's pretty unreal. And I think yeah. it's because we take a pretty honest look, uh, uh, sometimes a raw look at uh, all issues pertaining to uh, addiction and recovery. Uh, and so today, you've been you've been you've been getting fantastic guests recently, and I presume you have another today. Don't say no, because we need a guest. Do we have a guest? We absolutely do. Right. We have a guest today. So I would like to introduce her as a leader. She's definitely been a leader in my life. She is, um, she teaches, she's a professor at Salt Lake Community College in health and she teaches life, society and drugs. And without further ado, I would love to introduce Anna West. Anna, come on down. 
Is she there? Hi, there guys. she is. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. So, how are you? So she's been a she's played a big role in your life. How? Uh -huh. So she was my professor last semester, and I think one of the biggest things that that I would like to introduce is the lingo, right? Like when people are talking about someone in recovery, there's oftentimes words used as like abuser. And if they're very, um, they can be very stigmatizing or saying like clean time, meaning that somebody, it indicates that somebody is dirty, right? And so she actually at the beginning of class um, told all the students without even knowing anybody that was in recovery, she takes an approach of the appropriate ways to introduce or talk about individuals that have substance dependencies. And so I really respected her for that. And that just kind of opened the doorway to a friendship that we've been maintaining since. So, and, and why is it important to address people or identify people in certain ways? I think that the risk we run into when we use words like, you know, clean and dirty or um, addicted addict. is that, we're, yeah, addict, that we're moving away from a medical approach. So on the one hand, because I'm a health professor, I want to use language that reflects public health. Um, on the other hand, I think that it inspires us to approach it as a medical topic and not a choice so much. And, and that, that's, that's so important. And I think, you know, I've noticed just in the past couple of years that, well, for one thing, it's, it's been changed from substance abuse disorder to substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. what, why is that significant? Um, I think that in the DSM-5, I'm sorry if I get too nerdy, <laughs> they um, dropped some of the You're more- You're supposed to be nerdy. Yeah, I am a nerd. Yeah, so yeah. they dropped some of the language that was kind of, caused an emotional reaction. So use versus abuse, it really means the same thing. The other thing that changed with that, so I teach substance use disorder and there's 11 criteria. I really like how there's 11 criteria and how you can have mild, moderate and severe substance use disorder. That way we're not ignoring people who are kind of at that entry level. Um, the DSM also clarifies that if someone's taking medication for pain management with a doctor and taking it appropriately, they actually tell you how many criteria would be met um, and what to look for to see that escalate. So it's just much more, to me, it's much clearer. And it's also just a really easy way. Every semester I read through the 11 criteria and I have students make check marks and they can rate themselves or family member and know immediately. And then with those 11 criteria, you can also use those for improvement. How did you, how did you rank Rachel? How did I rank? A plus. <laughs> A plus. No, when you filled out the questionnaire about the 11. Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember. I think you're probably pretty low because of your abstinence yeah. focus. Yeah. That is because that's my approach is abstinence. And yeah. so even if it's like we, wherever the level is, that's just how I approach things working in the recovery community. Yeah. So why did you decide you could you could have you could have gotten into any field? Why did you decide to do this? Um, well, I've worked in public health 
since 1998. And I chose it because I like science, but I also really like social issues. So my focus in public health is all about equality and disparities and fighting disparities and working toward a more equitable society. And it's pretty amazing that there's a science where you can have that be your profession to work toward equity. And education is very much the same. Education is one of our foundations for equity. So I always tell my students, like you can lose a job with a great title. You can um, lose your income. Somebody can rob you. No one can rob you of your education. So that's why, and I just love being a teacher and I love being a teacher at Slick because we have the most diverse population, the most vulnerable students. Um, I've seen reports that we actually have the most diverse student body like of any school west of the Mississippi. And so it's really fun to work with students who maybe don't know they can do it or don't know how smart they are and have them know that at the end. And so you do an introduction, like how do you introduce substances and the stages of behaviors to look for in your um, class? So, you know, students, I really am open to students' questions and different things they want to talk about. And so usually a student will ask a question to introduce something like that. One of the most common questions that I get is about loved ones and how to support them. I think that we want to like make that decision for other people and decide for them, um, you're gonna quit or you're gonna join AA or you're gonna go to this treatment center that I chose. And so we talk about that and we talk about how to support people. Um, one of the funnest stories I have for me and teacher is that I had a student who had a cousin who was incarcerated on drug charges and during the course of my class, he learned that he could write letters to this cousin and how the cousin could get letters and different things that he could say that would be helpful, be encouraging. So I'm going to be nerdy again. I use the social cognitive school of psychology um, to just focus on. I don't think of things as like good or bad or, you know, moral or immoral it's just does it help or does it hurt whether it's a thought that you're having or um a commitment or a conversation is this helpful or is it unhelpful and i like that because it kind of removes that judgment so that's a wonderful way to look at life if you think about it <laughs> right now if you could get our people in washington to look at, at politics and and governing our country that way, we'd be in much better shape. Yeah, I think it requires a little bit of letting go of control, mm -hmm. maybe as a barrier to using just helpful versus unhelpful. But to me, that's the foundation of the social cognitive school of psychology. So that's something we work on with students every semester. Um, even if like you're scared about turning in a paper, like are your thoughts helpful or unhelpful? Is your process of approaching it helpful or unhelpful? And I think it takes out some of the stress. So, so you don't look at things good or bad. Uh, Rachel and I are both in recovery, me for alcohol, her for drugs. Okay, because I tell you I'm an alcoholic. Does that make me bad? Um, not to me. And I think that our job is to educate everyone how common it is to have a substance use disorder and 
if we don't, haven't experienced it ourselves, we have a loved one who has. And most people in recovery get better. Most people who have a substance use disorder do get better. The alternative, frankly, to getting better is to not survive, right? Absolutely. And that happens too, unfortunately. Um, one of the ways I look at substance use disorder is, this is kind of dark, but it's almost like little tiny suicide attempts mm -hmm. every day. And so how would you react to someone who's feeling suicidal? Would you judge them and tell them they're a bad person? Would that work? No. Yeah, that's a great perspective because it's true because ultimately- I'm like getting teary thinking about yeah. that, but that's my job. I'm not laughing at you. I'm just like, wow, yeah. I'm taken back because it's true, right? Like the more yeah. uh, that we enter substances in our body, like that's ultimately what we're doing. Is, it is. It's like a death sentence if you continue yeah. on that. Yeah. It's a self-imposed death sentence. And so to me, substance use disorder is almost like just a piece of that rising suicide rate that we have in America I, and I, should be addressed similarly. I, I, you know, I can relate to that because I remember um, I, I was extremely depressed a lot of the time because I was ingesting a depressant. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, but I never had really strong thoughts of suicide or, and I really didn't have the guts to take a bunch of pills or shoot myself or something. But, but I, I, I think I was happy or not happy, but I was okay with just drinking myself to death. And I figured yeah. well, someday I'm going to die and I don't care. Yeah. That, that, those are your two options, quit or die. Frankly, I mean, it's really a very sad thing, but um, this is kind of like my next point I wanted to bring up, which is that most people who have substance use disorder have a history of trauma, whether that's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And so the substance is a way of self-medicating that trauma. And this is all in the curriculum we teach at Slick, so it's pretty cool. <laughs> what would you say the stages of behaviors are? So say if you have people that um, feel like someone might be you know, using or that somebody might, um, or that they, they might be using themselves, right? And they're like, am I, am I becoming addicted? Am I not? What are the stages of behaviors that you so bring out? In the show notes, I've given a link to a model that we call the stages of behavior change theory. And you'll know from making changes yourself, whether it's like exercising more or brushing your teeth, that was, I always did flossing. We had to um, choose a behavior to change in ourselves in college. And every semester I did flossing because it wasn't, didn't have a lot of baggage for me. <laughs> but anyway, flossing is always my example. But say you want to start flossing or more likely you know someone who needs to floss and how do you get them to do it? And the stages of behavior change go through that. So there's um, five stages, you can think of it as a spiral because we don't just, you know, finish changing our behaviors, right? There's not an end point. It's something you have to do every day for the rest of your life. And usually with commitment, we get a little bit better at it, then we'll slide back. So one of the reasons I like this theory is that it tells you you're not going to be always climbing up that staircase. 
there's going to be times when you fall down a couple steps. So um, the stages are pre-contemplation, which is essentially not intending to make any change. Contemplation, um, preparation, action and maintenance. And then I would add a sixth, which is relapse because I want everyone to plan for and expect relapses. So if you're supporting someone who is in pre-contemplation or contemplation, they either have no intention to stop drinking or stop injecting drugs, whatever it is, or they're kind of thinking about it. The big tips that I would have are number one, just be there for them. One of the risks of drug use is the environment you end up in. So if they have an alternative environment, that is, it's an, you need an exit route, right? Um, so being there, the second one is, we call it decisional balance. It always makes me laugh because it's actually a math equation. So, <laughs> but our behaviors aren't math. So that's why I think it's funny. So on one side of the equation is uh, the benefits of continuing, like not changing, what do you get from drinking? And then the other side of the balance, it's like a division problem. So the other side is what would you get if you quit? And what we wanna do as supportive people is put more weight on the benefits of quitting. Because as long as it feels like not quitting has more benefits than quitting, you're not gonna quit. So it's kind of helpful to think of it as a math problem or a seesaw. You wanna weight the seesaw on the benefits side. And you don't do that by instructing someone begging them, ordering them, right? You do it by modeling. Being a role model is one way you could do it. Um, another way is like just offering love and support. Um, tell me some other things maybe that helped you make that decision to make that change. Um, I can. Oh, are you asking us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a teacher. I'm always asking okay, people questions and getting silent. Um, I, I know for me, like ultimately it was um, fearing for my life and then I wanted to be a mom. Like I knew yeah. I loved my kids. I just didn't know how to get custody of them back into my life. So they were, they were my driving force. They were not the reason yeah. why I got sober or I wouldn't still be sober today, but yeah. they were that driving force for me. That Randall, is... what about you? so common for women to say that it's those family relationships. But mine was, um, at first I didn't find more benefit to staying sober than yeah. not. And, and it was very difficult for me at first. And I had to sort of force myself to do all the things you're supposed to do, like go to AA meetings and continue go with through the therapists and everything else. Uh, and But then after a while, when I had like maybe I don't know, maybe over a year of sobriety, and I took stock of my life and my mental state, I found that I was probably happier than I had been over the 40 years of functional alcoholism, and that my life had gotten better. And so mm -hmm. pragmatically, I look at it as it's better sober than it's than, than yeah. being high. Uh, but, it, but it took time to get to that point. See, it is kind of a math equation, right? Yeah, it is. Is and, it better and, to continue or to stop? And so anything that you can do that's in that 
stopping column. So let's use my example of my student who started writing his cousin letters in prison. Um, he was letting him know, you know, you have an exit. You have people who love you. Um, he might be saying, I'm in school and I learned these things. And that's another option that you may not know in addiction is that you have, there's a future, you can learn, you can be part of a community, you can help other people. So he really was just being a role model, right? Yeah. And showing him a different life. The thing so, that used to bug me, you said you were, you were adding a sixth thing to that. And then relapse. relapse and it used to bug me when I was in a, in treatment up at uni uh, and they'd say relapse is part of recovery. And yeah, I, and it is. <laughs> well, does, that, does that mean that we should plan on relapsing even though mm -hmm. we're working on recovery? Can, can you explain why relapse? Yeah, so relapse? it doesn't necessarily mean that you plan to relapse. It means that you plan to deal with relapses. You have a plan. It's not, I always use this example of like, you want to lose weight and in the morning, you know, there's no cookies in the house. And then in the afternoon, oh, cookies sound really good. And then by nine o'clock at night, you've bought a bag of cookies and eaten the whole bag, right? That's and, <laughs> and that's exactly how all behavior changes go. And so what things could you do to prevent those cookies from being eaten? That's a way to prevent relapse. So we're acknowledging it could happen. If we don't acknowledge it can happen, we can't plan for it. And then once you eat one cookie, plan to stop there. If you do make a mistake and eat the whole bag, does it help to beat yourself up and be upset? Um, how are you gonna function when you make a mistake like that? So, and that kind of gets into the emotional regulation issues that we all, frankly, we all have, but particularly in addiction, that's an area that's really helpful is learning how to stop your thoughts and accept you know, things as they are that those skills just really help us start again the next morning. And I, love, I, love, I love how you simplified it and made it about cookies. Cause that's a good way that you could, you know, make sense of it or explain it to people. I've yeah. noticed that like that recently um, throughout COVID that like domestic violence is rising, alcoholism. Yes. And yes. you want to just speak about um, women and domestic violence and substance misuse among them. That was one of your topics. And so mm -hmm. why did you want to bring that topic about and what is it? Um, so women and substance use are really interesting, especially when you look at the statistics we see. And I think as a society, we have a perception that it's kind of like young white males who feel invincible, who are using the most substances. And as a block, they are. But that doesn't mean that women aren't making up a significant amount. The other, there's issues with women and substance abuse that are biological, economic, involve access to healthcare, involve family roles that can both make addiction worse and stop them from getting treatment. So that's why I like to talk about it. Um, the first topic that I think is really important is how women are introduced to substances 
usually men are introduced by a friend, something like 90% of men will uh, use heroin for the first time or marijuana or whatever it is with a friend. Do you guys agree? With women, it's almost always a domestic partner or romantic relationship. And when it's not a romantic relationship, it's on, on often a family relationship where those drugs are introduced. So that's a big difference in how it starts in kind of the associations that women might have with drugs in their safety. I think you're safer if a friend introduces you to drugs than if someone you live with does, right? There could be issues there. Um, women also tend to get into treatment a lot later in the process of their addiction because of economic reasons, having health insurance, having someone to take care of their kids while they're gone. And often too, women are using drugs that are stimulants like methamphetamine or Adderall. They're using them to enable them to kind of be the superwoman and take care of their kids and work, take care of a spouse. Um, so all those things make it quite a different picture for women and substance use. And I think that even though it's a little bit smaller proportion, it's still a significant number and we can't really use the same techniques to encourage women into treatment that we can for men. Do you agree with that? What, what kind of technique do we need to use for women as opposed to men? I think with women, it's a matter of addressing barriers to treatment. So making it affordable, making sure they have a way to pay for it, making sure their children are safe when they're gone. Um, something we can do kind of like before substance use disorder develops is education that women really can't physically handle as many alcoholic drinks as a man can. And there's two reasons for that. One is there's a metabolic enzyme that processes alcohol that is lower in women than in men. And the second reason is body fat. So men have more muscle mass than women do. Women have a little bit more body fat and the body fat also makes processing the drinks go slower. And then there's just overall physical size. Women tend to be a little bit smaller than men. So that's a preventative um, focus that we can take. And do you guys feel like you knew that before you had your first drink of alcohol? <laughs> no, no. I yeah. Don't. I, I, I didn't give much thought to my, having my first drink. <laughs> yeah, at all. You, must, you must have been fun when you were younger. Hey, do you want to have a drink? And you say, well, here's the parameters <laughs> of drink. That's exactly what I was like. I had my um, chart. Remember the chart with like how many drinks and yeah, alcohol yeah. percentage? I had that in my purse. <laughs> Jeez. I've never been that fun. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't ask you out on a date when you're going out drinking. Oh, gosh. I, yeah, I've never tell, telling the guys the next day I was out with this woman who's who brought out this chart and said that she can only have two drinks. And I, I mean, my gosh. But see, you know that it's actually two drinks um, is I think it's three drinks per day for a woman and seven over the course of a week for safety, but if you drink those seven drinks all at once, that's binge drinking, which affects your body a lot more. And that's true for both men and women. We, so. have, we have two minutes left. What other cogent idea would you like to impart with us? 
Um, I would say that to anyone who is in recovery or thinking about recovery, know that there is a life after recovery. Um, I usually have five or six students in each class who are in recovery. We have a big population of students in recovery at Salt Lake Community College, and that's one place that you can go and have a community around you that supports you. So there's job training, there's it, there's just so much more to life. And so know that's there for you and that you are worth it. I don't think people are aware of the, of the, of the offerings at, at SLIC uh, because it's like, so like yours or help with job training or anything. Mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a heck of a, an important resource in our community. Yeah, I love it. And it's a very loving and supportive atmosphere. Um, we're always working with students to make sure that, you know, if they didn't know something that they need to know to take their classes, that we make those resources available. We have labs, we have employment opportunity. We're hoping to add housing, um, on-campus housing, which is something I've really wanted because every semester or so I'll have a student who's living in an unsafe situation and I want them to be able to live somewhere safe so that they can learn. So we even have a garden and a feral cat program. A feral cat program? <laughs> yeah, our library has, <clears throat> has tons of stray cats. And so we have a whole spay and neuter program and <laughs> I'm taking care of those cats on our campus too. <laughs> when you said it was a diversified school, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's the librarians. Isn't that funny? It's the librarians who started the feral cat program. <laughs> <laughs> that does fit. Anna, thank you very much. You have been a tremendous guest and I, I'm, I'm glad you, you found her, Rachel. I'm glad you got to go through her class. It must have made a difference in your life. Absolutely. It definitely did because I was able to speak to her like I speak to you, Randall, like someone in recovery. So knowing a teacher, because before going to school, like I didn't think I was smart enough or good enough. So having the ability to go to a teacher that can see you and that wants to see you has um, definitely empowered me to continue to keep going. So absolutely. Anna, oh, you're a treasure. We're lucky to have you. We're lucky to have her at Odyssey House as well. You are. Thank you very much. And thank you for all you do at Salt Lake Community College and what you do for society. I love, thank you. I, I love your viewpoints. So. Thanks. I'm grateful that I get to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you for watching or listening to Odyssey House Journals.